Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10 of Isaiah chapter 8. Let's now give careful attention to the reading of God's holy word, beginning in verse 1. Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record. Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Then I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria." The Lord also spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin and in Remaliah's son, now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries, Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. May the Lord bless the reading of His word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 8. As we focus our attention this morning upon verses 6 and 7, especially verse 6, where we find the Lord speaking to Isaiah, saying this, inasmuch as these people, or I think, better translated, this people. It's not speaking of a collection of individuals, but a people, a nation. Inasmuch as this nation, inasmuch as this people group. So it says, inasmuch as this people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin and in Remaliah's son, Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river. That's the Euphrates. Strong and mighty. The king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. So the Lord is sending the king of Assyria as a great torrent of judgment 
symbolized by the primary river that flowed through Assyria, the Euphrates. But uh, the king of Assyria will be a great source of judgment for this people. Why? Because this people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly. So you can see the contrast here. This people, whomever that's speaking of, we'll look at that in due time. This people refused the gentle waters of Shiloh, and so they will receive the fierce waters of the king of Assyria. Now the waters of Shiloh are something of a mystery to us, but based on the Scriptures, we can be fairly certain of a few things that the waters of Shiloh were located in Jerusalem and they were probably located along the southern tip of Jerusalem near the king's garden. So this was in a portion of Jerusalem where the king would reside, where the the city of David was located. Sometimes we think of Jerusalem itself as the city of David, but part of the city was really dominated by the fact that the temple was present, and then the other part of the city is often referred to as the city of David, as a subset of the entire city of Jerusalem. And this uh, fountain or pool of water, which is called the waters of Shiloh, was most likely located in that portion, the city of David, the southern tip of Jerusalem, near the king's garden. We know that from several passages, Nehemiah 3, verse 15, and various others. This was a fountain or pool of water that was supplied with water from a spring or a well. And so it would, it would in a sense, be just a pool that's sitting there, still water, if you will, but there would be water that would gently flow out of that spring, out of that well, up in through the aqueducts into this fountain or pool in the city of Jerusalem near the king's garden. So these are the waters of Shiloh. The waters of Shiloh are named after the word scent. Shiloh means scent. And as we'll see, God willing, this evening when we consider the Lord Jesus healing the blind man at the pool of Siloam, we'll see that that's the exact same pool. That's the exact same fountain. And so it was around in the 730s B.C., which is the time period that Isaiah chapter 8 is describing. And it was around in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first century A.D. This fountain or pool of water near the fountain gate on the southern tip of Jerusalem near the king's garden. And it came to be something of an emblem of the Davidic kingdom. And it's used that way in our text. This people refused the Davidic kingdom. And in doing so, they refused this emblem of the Davidic kingdom, these waters of Shiloh. And of course, we know God's covenant with David by which He established the Davidic kingdom was centered around the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the root and offspring of David, who is repeatedly described in the New Testament as the One whom the Father sent. And so, this pool of water, whether they knew that at the time they named it, we don't know the origin of the name, but in terms of its usage in the Scriptures, this name Shiloh 
points us to the One whom the Father sent to seek and save that which was lost. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, 1 John says. And even in John chapter 9, we'll see in the opening verses, before introducing the Pool of Siloam and the meaning of that term which is sent, it mentions that the Lord Jesus instructed His disciples that the Father had sent Him into the world to accomplish these saving purposes. And so, this is the pool or the fountain of the sent one. And of course, the Lord Jesus frequently uses the imagery of water, drawing on the Old Testament, the fountains of living water. Uh, In Jeremiah, uh, in his prophecy, he speaks of Israel rejecting the fountain of living waters and digging out cisterns of their own devisings that could hold no water. And Jesus in John chapter 4 confronts the woman at the well, urging her to receive water from the wells of salvation, Isaiah 12, if you will. And urging her to receive the waters of life that are in fact eternal life through faith in Christ. So you can see the, the graphic imagery here the waters of Shiloh, an emblem of the Davidic kingdom which would point ahead to the sent one who brings salvation as waters to a dry and thirsty land. Now, in order for us to understand verse 6 properly, we need to understand the geopolitical situation at this time. As I mentioned, it's the 730s B.C. roughly. And we need to understand what's happening among these various nations. In order for us to make sense of which people group is being described in verse 6 and what the significance is and the application then for ourselves, it's crucial for us to understand the geopolitical situation at this time. And so first we think of Assyria. They're mentioned in verse 7. The king of Assyria. Now at this time, Assyria, which was to the north of the land of Israel was a rising empire. Assyria was a rising empire at that time and it was a growing threat in the region. As Assyria gained momentum and military strength and incrementally began to conquer nations on its southern border, it became a great and significant threat to Syria to the south of Assyria and then south of that to the northern kingdom of Israel, which the capital city of that is Samaria. That's where Ahab and Jezebel reign. Northern kingdom of Israel. And then eventually to the southern kingdom of Judah. So Assyria was a rising empire and a growing threat in the region. And for that reason, Syria, immediately to the south of Assyria, made an alliance with the idolatrous northern kingdom of Israel which at that time was ruled by Pekah. We'll say something more about him in a moment. But Syria made it a point to make an alliance with the northern kingdom of Israel, which was immediately south of Syria. And they joined together Rezin, the king in Damascus, the king of Syria, with Pekah, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel in Samaria. They joined forces and conspired to overthrow Judah. So they said, well, Judah is not in lockstep with our treaty, with our alliance against Assyria. They're not wanting to join with us or for whatever reason, probably that was the reason. 
but they conspired to overthrow the Davidic kingdom of Judah to the south in Jerusalem. And most of us are familiar with Isaiah chapter 7 where the Lord brings a word of what was supposed to be a word of comfort to Ahaz, the king of Judah in the southern kingdom, because Ahaz is shaking like a leaf. He's frightened about this conspiracy between Syria and Israel to the north to essentially conquer Judah and replace the Davidic king himself with the son of Tabeel. So there was a conspiracy. And this is the conspiracy that's famously referenced in chapter 8, verse 12, where it says, do not say a conspiracy, and so on and so forth. And people wrongly think that the Bible is saying here that there is no conspiracy. If you read the context, there is a conspiracy. And chapter 7 makes that clear. The King James translates the word conspiracy as confederation. It's saying stop talking about this alliance between Syria and Israel against Judah. Stop talking about it. Stop being obsessed with it. Fear the Lord and you won't have anything else to fear. So there is this conspiracy between Syria and Israel to the north. Now Israel to the north had been separate from the southern kingdom of Judah for roughly 200 years. So we're going to look at the context, the circumstances of when they separated from the kingdom of Judah. But Israel had been broken off. The ten tribes to the north had broken off and separated themselves from the Davidic kingdom about 200 years prior to this. So in around the 930s B.C. And since that time, since that separation, that secession from the United Kingdom of Israel, if you will, Israel had had 19 kings. 19 kings, five royal houses of kings, between seven and eight assassinations of kings, and seven of those kings reigned for less than two years. So this was a very unstable kingdom and from time to time you had stable rulers that would rise up and retain the kingship for a time. They typically didn't have a ton of success in terms of passing the scepter to their children at least for very many generations. But one of the most stable uh, administrations or, or kingships during that time was that of Pekah. He ruled for 20 years. He was eventually assassinated, and, and, but he ruled for 20 years. And the kings that came before him were ruling for very short periods of time, and then he shows up, and he rules for a long period of time. He was a military officer who killed the previous king in a geopolitical coup, and he reigned for 20 years. And so we're told in verse 6 that this people is rejoicing not only in Rezin, the king of Syria, but also in Remaliah's son, because Pekah was the son of Remaliah. So he was popular. He lasted for 20 years. That's an accomplishment in that type of environment. That reminds us, by the way, that as you look at our society, and there are times when you think, well, it's right on the verge of unraveling, and you know the apocalypse is, is just around the corner, that's how it appeared with Israel in many instances over those 200 years. You would have periods where there were 
two or three kings in rapid succession that were assassinated and ruled for only a short time, and you're thinking, well, it's all over. And then a guy like Pekah shows up, and he has stability for 20 years straight. Uh, Eventually, however, the northern kingdom of Israel did fall apart and was conquered definitively by the Assyrians under the reign of Pekah's successor, Hosea, who reigned for nine years. Uh, So we're cautioned here from being too quick to the trigger, too quick to make assumptions about, well, the end is near for our society. But we're also cautioned from thinking that God's judgment will never come. Eventually it did come uh, in the reign of the next king. So there you have Israel. They've made this alliance with Syria and they're going to try and overthrow Judah to the south. And that shows us that their rejection of the kingdom of Judah was not simply, uh, well, we'll just be separate and maintain a healthy relationship. That eventually this became a bitter feud and rivalry. They flat out rejected the kingdom of Judah. They rejected the messianic promises that God had given to Judah. And King Ahaz at this time felt so threatened by this alliance between Syria and Israel that he did something very foolish. He made an alliance with the king of Assyria. So he says, okay, if you're going to try and conquer me, Syria and Israel, I'm going to make an alliance with the king of Assyria, the big dog. And I'm going to come to him humbly. And we see that in the Kings and Chronicles where he actually declares himself to be the son and servant of the king of Assyria. And that worked temporarily. The king of Assyria, as our text alludes to, did conquer Syria and did conquer Israel to the north very quickly. In fact, that conquest took place before Isaiah's son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, reached the age where he could cry out, my father and my mother. So it did come quickly. Damascus and Samaria were destroyed and taken captive by the king of Assyria. But it didn't work out so well for the king of Judah because we know that eventually Assyria broke that treaty and made an invasion in the days of Hezekiah surrounding the city. And eventually, as we sang in Psalm 46c, the Lord, by way of the angel of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, delivered them. Emmanuel defended his land. God was with them. And 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were destroyed by God's judgment. So that's the geopolitical situation. And at this point, we find ourselves in a period of time just before Assyria, with its alliance with, with Judah, would just come into Syria and Israel and wreck shop and defeat them handily. So that's the period of time we find ourselves now. Keep in mind that Judah was a very wicked nation at this time as well. King Ahaz rejected the promise of Emmanuel in Isaiah chapter 7. He was one of the most wicked, idolatrous kings of Judah at that time. So the kingdom of Judah was not doing itself any favors in terms of attracting the uh, solidarity of the ten tribes to the north. But in Judah and Jerusalem, you did have the faithful preaching of the Word of God. You did have... Prophets like Isaiah and Micah and others. You also had the temple in Jerusalem where the worship of God continued with relative faithfulness pointing ahead to the coming of Christ. 
the worship of God, the truth of God was still there to a large extent. As Jesus says, even in His own backslidden day, in the first century, He says to the woman at the well in Samaria, who would have been descended partly from these Israelites to the north, He said that salvation is of the Jews. We know who and what we worship, and salvation is of the Jews. So, the worship of God and the salvation of God was still present. The promises of God were still present in Jerusalem at that time. Uh, The waters of Shiloh, if you will, had not run dry. And yet, the northern kingdom of Israel was conspiring with the Syrians to destroy the kingdom of Judah, the Davidic throne, and replace the Davidic king with the son of Tobiel. And so, it's Israel to the north that is the people group described in verse 6. Inasmuch as this people, inasmuch as these people of Israel to the north refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly, it's Israel to the north that had refused the Davidic kingdom and had rejected the waters of Shiloh. And they had done so from the days of Rehoboam and Jeroboam down to the present day in the 730s B.C. It had been 200 years since this rejection first began. And perhaps some of us are familiar with the circumstances of how Israel came to refuse the waters of Shiloh. They came to do it in the days of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the heir to Solomon's throne. Now, during the days of Solomon, Solomon did many good things, but he eventually fell into idolatry, and he expanded the power and scope of the civil government to the point where, with all of his building projects throughout the land and these required work programs for people to come and help construct these things, it became a great burden upon the Israelites throughout the 12 tribes, and especially the 10 tribes to the north. They were somewhat disgruntled at what they perceived to be a heavy hand by Solomon. And we know that Solomon was not a perfect man. He had many problems, and this was, we think, probably one of them. There's some validity to this concern about Solomon's reign. He, he got carried away with uh, you know, all of these tasks and, and placing this burden upon the 10 tribes to the north especially. Now, in 1 Kings 12, we find that representatives, you could say, of the labor union of the Israelites to the north, representatives of the workers to the north, come to Rehoboam around the time of his inauguration to the kingdom, and they say in 1 Kings 12, verse 4, "...your father made our yoke heavy." Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us and we will serve you. And so Rehoboam says, okay, give me a few days to think this over. He goes to the elders. Verse 6, the older men, perhaps even those who served in civil or ecclesiastical office, but in any case, the elders, uh, we know they were older men because they're contrasted with younger men, and he goes to them for counsel. And verse 7, they say, if you will be a servant to these people today, in other words, if you will engage in faithful service, servant leadership, um, if your leadership of them will be a heartfelt act of service for their good, and you'll use your authority and your 
power in the civil government for their good and listen to their feedback and be a wise and understanding king, if you do that and if you answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But we're told he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and who stood before him. Now, he was 41 years old, I think, at this time. More could be said about that. But uh, he was a somewhat younger man in that sense. And he goes to the younger men that he had grown up with, and he asks for their advice. And the young men say, verse 10, Thus you should speak to this people. Your father made our yoke heavy, but you made it lighter on us. Uh, That's what they were saying to him. And they're saying, here's your response. My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So Jeroboam and all the people, we'll talk about Jeroboam in a second, he's basically the, the labor, uh, labor union chief, if you will, representing the people. So Rehoboam comes to the people having heard the advice of the older men and the younger men, and he listens to the advice of the younger men. Verse 14, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people. For the turn of events was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word. We'll look at that in a moment as well. Verse 16, the people of Israel say, what share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. Rehoboam tried to gain control. He sent a servant to them, but they stoned that servant. And eventually, the northern kingdom was separate and remained so for 200 years down to the present context. We also find Jeroboam here, who eventually became Israel's first king in the northern kingdom. He was essentially the representative of the people who sought to negotiate with Rehoboam and was rejected as well. Now, Jeroboam is mentioned earlier in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 28. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. So again, he's head of the labor union, if you will, head of all the labor force. Uh, in some sense, he's, he's um, well, he works for the king initially. Maybe he becomes the head of the labor union eventually. But, uh, and we're told now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the, son, uh, the Shilonite, met him on the way. And so Ahijah confronts Jeroboam and essentially says that God is going to tear the ten kingdoms out of the hand of Solomon and make Jeroboam the king as a judgment on Solomon for Solomon's idolatry. So all of this is predicted in advance by this prophet of the Lord. Jeroboam knows about it. Solomon finds out about this prophecy and he chases Jeroboam away. And Jeroboam, we're told, chapter 11, verse 40, 
Uh, Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So now Jeroboam is back, and he's rejected by Rehoboam. And the people of Israel rally around Jeroboam now that he's back, and he becomes the first king of the northern kingdom. We know later on that he fell into idolatry. He invented all forms of uh, newfangled worship that the Bible had never instituted. He made his own priests. He made his own holy days. He invented his own elements of worship with the golden calves to try to get people not to go to the temple in Jerusalem. So he was a wicked king. Not a lot of protagonists in, in this history here, but, but that's how it happened. And we're told that this continued down to the present day. Down to the present day. Such that in verse 6 of our text, the second half of the verse says that the northern kingdom of Israel, the people there, rejoice in Rezin, the king of Syria, with whom their current king Pekah has made an alliance, and they rejoice in Pekah, the son of Remaliah. So the people as a whole are rejoicing in this rebellion. They're rejoicing in this alliance against the Davidic kingdom. They're rejoicing not in the Lord Jesus Christ, the sent one, the Shiloh, who is to come. They're not rejoicing in that. They're not rejoicing in those promises. They're rejoicing to stamp out and exterminate God's covenant people in the nation of Judah. And so you have Pekah and Rezin joining together against the Lord's anointed. Now, Israel's refusal of the waters of Shiloh can be described in a number of ways. What are we to make of the fact that Israel, under this heavy hand of Rehoboam, responded by refusing to be subject to the Davidic throne? First, we can say that it was providential. Uh, As we mentioned already, and as is abundantly clear in multiple instances in 1 Kings 11, and in 1 Kings 12, specifically chapter 12, verse 24, this was of the Lord. God had providentially orchestrated the circumstances so that the ten northern tribes would be wrenched out of the hand of the Davidic king. So it was a judgment of God against Solomon for his idolatry, and it was something that God brought about to the extent that when Judah tried to reclaim the territory, he said, don't do it, this is of me. I've planned this. I have ordained this. Don't try to get it back. Secondly, we can say that it was not only providential, it was understandable. It's understandable that if Rehoboam was tyrannical and heavy-handed and didn't listen to his laborers, it's understandable that they would rebel. It's understandable that if they're provoked to wrath, that they're going to be filled with wrath. Uh, that's just the way things work. That's just cause and effect in a realistic, real-world scenario. If you treat the people under your authority in that manner, that's probably going to happen. Uh, Galatians 6, verse 7 tells us that we need to observe the cause and effect relationships in this world. It says, whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And it also brings into the equation the idea of God not being mocked. 
God will not be mocked. God will not be tempted when we fail to utilize the, the means that He's appointed for godly leadership to secure and sustain the loyalty of those under our charge, when we fail to use the God-appointed means of cultivating that, we're sowing seeds of rebellion and we shouldn't be surprised if seeds of rebellion sprout up. So it's understandable that if Rehoboam is not going to listen to the legitimate concerns and not even listen to biblical wisdom from the elders, that his people are going to rebel. That is understandable. And Satan knows that. And that's why husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, elders of the church, fellow elders, we need to be aware of this. Satan knows this. He knows if he can get you as an elder, or me as an elder, as a pastor, or you as a mother or as a father, if he can get you in a position of authority to do things that are unkind, and unyielding and tyrannical or hypocritical or scandalous, if he can do that, he knows that those seeds of rebellion are going to sow seeds of rebellion and discord in the people under your charge. He knows that if elders abuse their authority in the church, very likely he, the evil one, and his minions are going to be able to persuade someone to abandon their faith. That happens all the time when there are church scandals, when elders are unfaithful to their charge and hypocritical and scandalous things happen. People abandon the faith. And Satan knows this. That it's it's understandable. He knows the cause and effect that when parents provoke their children to wrath, that is going to provoke them to wrath. And it's going to provoke them to sinful actions that could lead their soul to hell itself, if not to greatly hinder their Christian life. He knows that. And we should not be unmindful of Satan's devices. It is very, very important when we have a position of authority to use it and not abuse it and to sow seeds of loyalty and camaraderie and of godly biblical authority and submission in those relationships with people under our authority. So it's understandable. Uh, If Rehoboam's going to act that way, I don't think any of us are surprised that Israel rebelled against his authority. Thirdly, it was sinful. It was sinful for Israel to the north, despite the fact that it was God's providential judgment on Solomon, despite the fact that it was, in a sense, understandable. Nevertheless, it was sinful for them to refuse the waters of Shiloh. It was sinful for them to refuse submission to the Davidic kingdom that God had established. It was sinful for them not to continue among the people of God worshiping at the temple despite the scepter of unrighteousness that was over them. It was sinful that they didn't join the rest of their believing Israelite brethren in maintaining their allegiance to the Lord and His promise and waiting for Emmanuel who was yet to come. It was sinful. Genesis 49.10 says in a, in a prophecy during the final stage of Jacob's life, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, whether Shiloh and Shiloh are to be taken as uh, 
synonymous. I'm not here to speculate. That regardless of that, the point is, whether it's Shiloh or Shiloh or Jerusalem or Judah, the scepter, the Davidic authority that God had established under David in fulfillment of this prophecy was to continue until the Messiah came. And so they were to continue worshiping at the temple. They were to continue in submission to God's promises and God's worship and to God's Davidic king. They had a duty to do that. In fact, if you look at uh, 1 Kings 11, 12, and following, you'll see that when the kingdom to the north split off, almost immediately the Levites and various other faithful Israelites defected to the south. And they remained in that area. And they refused to be disloyal to the Davidic throne which God had established because Shiloh had not yet come. Emmanuel had not yet come. So it was sinful for them to do that. And uh, interestingly, later on in Second Chronicles chapter 13, verses 4 and following, you find um, a successor of Rehoboam, Abijah. And he rebukes the ten tribes to the north. I'm not going to read that whole section, but he rebukes them for not remaining loyal to God's Davidic throne in Judah, in Jerusalem. So it was sinful for them to do that, and the faithful Israelites continued to worship at the temple. Many of them actually moved down to the southern kingdom itself. So they should have remained faithful. They should not have reacted that way. But it was providential and it was understandable. It was also unbelieving. It was unbelieving. There are many instances of wicked rulers and tyrants occupying the throne of David. And throughout that period of time when that has been the case, God's believing people always remained faithful. Even in the days of Manasseh. 55 years. Most of which involved tyranny they remained faithful to the Lord. Though they might be hiding from Manasseh, they certainly didn't have a, a strong um, emotional attachment to him. But, but they didn't forsake the Lord and they didn't forsake the Lord's promises. They didn't refuse the waters of Shiloh. They were hanging on for Christ to come. And uh, we're told in um, 2 Samuel chapter 7 that built into the Davidic covenant was a promise that God would be with His faithful, believing people even when the Davidic king was unfaithful. Uh, right after in this passage, 2 Samuel seven twelve and following, right after he says that he's going to establish uh, the kingdom and throne of David and his successors and he's going to uh, establish the throne of his kingdom forever, midway through verse 14, if he commits iniquity... That's the Davidic king. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. So God's saying the Davidic throne is going to continue. And even when things get bad, look to me. I will sustain you. Don't abandon your faith in Christ to come. Don't abandon the church. Don't abandon the worship of God and worship golden calves with Jeroboam. Don't abandon the faith simply because the Davidic king in authority is 
ungodly and tyrannical. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the blows of the sons of men. I'll reform it. I'll protect you. I will bring restoration of a godly monarch. And uh, Psalm 125 tells us that the scepter of the unrighteous king will not remain on God's righteous people. If they remain faithful to Him, God will eventually evict that wicked authority figure from the throne. And so, it was unbelieving of them to panic, to try to escape, to try to run away from Jerusalem and from these gentle waters of Shiloh. Psalm 133 tells us that it's in Jerusalem and in the Israelites from all the tribes coming to these feasts of the Lord, these sacramental feasts three times a year, coming from the upper regions, even as the dew of Hermon descending upon Mount Zion. It says that this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And it says that for there, that is in Jerusalem, the Lord commanded the blessing. It's in Jerusalem where the ordinances of God pointing to Christ were taking place day by day, year by year, festival by festival. It's there where the Jews know whom they worship and salvation is of the Jews. We sang it in Psalm 87 before the service. It's there in Jerusalem that God loves Jerusalem far more than all the dwellings of Jacob. And so they were wrong to stop coming to the temple and worshiping in Jerusalem. They were wrong to support an alliance and a conspiracy to overthrow the king of Judah and set up the son of Tabeel. Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly, that was an unbelieving and a sinful refusal. And we need to take stock of this. It's not only unbelieving and sinful, but it's also foolish. Because the Lord here says, you're forsaking the gentle waters of Shiloh. You're forsaking the coming of the One who is meek and gentle of heart. Emmanuel who will defend His land against the Assyrians. You're you're forsaking that beautiful, glorious, good shepherd who loves His people, who gives His life for His people. You're forsaking the gentle waters of Shiloh for these fierce waters of judgment from the King of of Assyria. When you reject Jerusalem, even if Jerusalem is occupied by wicked people. I mean, what do you think was the case in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ? Jerusalem was dominated by the very people that nailed the Son of God to the cross. But did Jesus forsake the feast? Did He forsake the synagogue? Did He forsake the worship of God? No, He did not. This evening, Lord willing, we're going to consider the man who was born blind and whom Jesus healed right near this pool of Siloam by the waters of Shiloh. And we're going to consider this evening a man who had many stumbling blocks, many hindrances to faith, many Rehoboams in his life that would drive him away from the worship of God and from the promises of God. This is a man who was afflicted by God Himself with blindness. This is a man who was judged hastily by the disciples of Christ who thought that this man or his parents sinned and that's why he was blind. This is a man who was thrown under the bus by his own parents. When the Pharisees are investigating, they're like, well, just talk to him. Go talk to him. They're throwing him under the bus and he eventually is excommunicated from the Jewish synagogue being thrown to the wolves, literally, 
by his parents. So the church of that day was, in fact, dominated by wolves and thieves and robbers and hirelings. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, don't reject true religion because of that. Rather, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. In the midst of a world of Rehoboam's who answer roughly, who add to the yoke of oppression rather than lightening it, who chasten with whips and scourges. And I think one translation, translation says scorpions. In a world where that's happening, In a world of Rehoboam's, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, come to me. I'm meek and lowly of heart. I will give rest for your soul. I will be as the gentle waters of Shiloh to quench your thirst, to cleanse you, and to make you whole. I will heal you as I healed the blind man, he says. The the gentle waters of Shiloh. The Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, uh, the danger of living in a fallen, wicked world is that because we don't see God and we don't see Christ, and perhaps we're not reading our Bible and receiving the doctrine of God and of the character of God revealed in Christ as we ought, we begin to think God is a lot like ourselves. Or worse, we begin to think that God is a lot like Rehoboam. And... This is very dangerous. Okay? If you ask Rehoboam when he was treating the children of Israel harshly, if you asked him, do you think what you're doing conforms to the character of God? I'm sure he would have said yes. And I'm sure he would have wanted everyone in Israel to think that God was a lot like him. But God is not like him. And you see, as much tyranny as Rehoboam exercised over the children of Israel in provoking them to wrath, in, in terms of outward oppression, nothing is more tyrannical than for the children of Israel to allow Rehoboam to determine their doctrine of God. Nothing more uh, tyrannical than falling into the trap of believing that when Rehoboam says, yes, I'm doing this and this reflects the character of God, and you begin to think God is like him. That's the worst form of tyranny. That's the kind of tyranny that will tyrannize your soul for eternity in hell. That's the kind of tyranny that we find in the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25 where the guy who buries his talent in the dirt and doesn't do anything with it and doesn't come to the Lord and believe the Lord and serve the Lord faithfully and seek first the kingdom of God, that individual is utterly skeptical and... um, completely disabused of any type of genuine recognition of God's love, God's mercy, filled with cynicism and apathy. He says, listen, I buried that talent, that spiritual opportunity and advantage. I didn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Why? Because I knew that you were a hard man, a severe man. My friends, that's the great lie from the Garden of Eden on. That God is out to get you. That God is tyrannical. He won't let you eat that forbidden fruit because He's against you. He's putting a glass ceiling on your happiness. You could be like Him, but He's jealous and angry. He doesn't want you to reach your full potential. And He's a hard man. He's a harsh man. He's a Rehoboam. He's adding to your burden. He's answering you roughly. And my friends, 
nothing could be further from the truth. When you reject the waters of Shiloh, the gentle streams of God's faithfulness through Christ, you are inviting a lake of fire and brimstone. You are inviting the floodwaters of God's wrath. You are picking a fight with God because you're not just refusing God's help, which by the way, that's what they did. In the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, the Assyrians cut through them like a hot knife through butter. But Judah, with all of its faults and problems, was protected from being conquered by the Assyrians. The Lord was faithful to the Davidic promises. He raised up Hezekiah, so the people that were hanging on, waiting for God to deal with the problem, not running away from the faith, running away from the church because of tyranny, they held on. Eventually, Hezekiah comes to the throne and Emmanuel delivers them. So you're rejecting God's help. You're rejecting God's house where salvation through the means of grace is streaming forth from the waters of Shiloh, and as Psalm 87 says, all my springs are found in you, in Jerusalem, insofar as God blesses us through its ordinances. But you're also refusing God's anointed. You're refusing the waters of the sent one, the waters of life, the waters of salvation, the fountain that God has opened up for the uncleanness of His people to be washed away, You're rejecting the one whom God has sent. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. You're rejecting the one whose name is Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You're rejecting Him. And you're inviting the wrath and judgment of God which Jesus came to save people from. That's the decision. It's a foolish decision. Uh, And all throughout Isaiah's prophecy, this Emmanuel, this God with us, this one who reveals the character of God, who shows who God really is and what God is truly like, it reveals this Emmanuel in this way. Isaiah 40, verse 11. Just listen to some of these verses. He will feed His flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs with His arm and carry them in His bosom. And gently lead those who are with young. It then goes on to say that He has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, measured heaven with a span of His arm, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. So the transcendent God, yes, but He holds those lambs close to His bosom. He's gentle. He's meek. He's lowly in heart. Isaiah 42, 1-3 Picking up in verse 2, He will not cry out nor raise His voice nor cause His voice to be heard in the street. It's not the kind of person that if you're walking by the, the family's house on the street corner, you can hear Him shouting at His family uh, or at His friends or at whomever He's talking to. No. His disciples know. The Lord Jesus Christ is one whose voice is not heard in the street. Now, he preached in the streets. He was a street preacher. You could hear him then. Because what's the point of preaching if you can't be heard? But you couldn't, you couldn't hear. He wasn't shouting. He wasn't over the top. He wasn't an angry person. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not 
fail nor be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for His law. How does Jesus establish justice in the earth? How does He prevail? And how does He successfully accomplish all the purposes of His authority as the mediatorial King? How does He do it? Not with a heavy hand. But He invites, He woos, He wins. He is gentle and tender-hearted to those who come to Him. A bruised reed He will not break. A smoking flax He will not quench. That is the character of God. God with us. As revealed through the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 46, 3 and 4, He's the one who carries us from the womb even to our old age. He's always with us. Always bearing us up and bearing us along. We could go on and on, but to, to refuse the gentle waters of Shiloh, my friends, implies their availability. What sense would it make for God to condemn the Israelites for refusing something that was never offered to them in good faith? What sense would that make? But He does confront them. He says, you refused it. You refused it, which means that it's available, which means come to the waters of Shiloh, Isaiah 55. Come to the waters. Come and receive freely of God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Come receive the tender care and healing mercy of the Good Shepherd who laid down His life for the sins of His sheep. Come to the waters of Shiloh. Let all who desire to come, come. As Revelation 22, verse 17 says. Don't be like those described in Jeremiah chapter 6 where the Lord says, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Don't be like the unbelieving, unconverted Jews in the days of our Savior's flesh when He said this in Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Don't be like those people who refused the gentle love, compassion, the welcoming affection and grace and salvation which is offered to you by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that You would take our eyes off of earthly circumstances, off of earthly leaders and rulers, off of the elders of this church, off of the parents in the room, off of the civil government in our land. Take our eyes for a moment off of these individuals, even off the, the, the preacher leading worship in the pulpit, and turn our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ that we may receive Him and rest upon Him for salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel. We pray in His name. Amen.